Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. Hi, everybody. We're here with Dr. Matt Mahoudi, who just finished his PhD in development studies at Cambridge University and is a Joe Cox scholar in refugee and migration studies. So thanks so much for being with us here today, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So maybe we could start with you telling us just a little bit about um, your research and um, the PhD you just finished. As you pointed out, you know, in your work, the discussions about technology um, especially in regards to migration, are often, you know, this sort of like tech, you know, utopian, like heralded as a sort of like technical solution to migration problems. Um, that like what refugees really need is more tech or, you know, apps that will solve their problems. Um, so what did you find in your research was sort of like the actual experience of many of these immigrant or refugee communities in regards to technology? Yeah, so... Just to um, to preface that a little bit, I came to this research at a moment around uh, 2015, 2016, when the narrative about the refugee crisis had sort of started to um, be all-consuming and, and ubiquitous. And, you know, all, all over certainly the European media landscape, there was a lot of focus on the refugees' welcome narrative um, against the backdrop of what was more or less a fairly hostile, not just immigration environment, but, you know, an environment that deployed security technologies and sophisticated biometric technologies and sophisticated surveillance technologies and had been doing so for the last decade or more, especially in the wake of 9-11, and was actively contributing to the deaths of people who were crossing the Mediterranean. And yet there was this posturing around the generous Europe, the generous European continent. And the generosity kind of manifested itself in this idea, certainly around the time that TechBGs was formed, which is an organization that was set up by editor-at-large um, from TechCrunch, Mike Butcher. Um, when, when that organization came around, it sort of became this new bat almost to find technical solutions to the refugee problem, whatever that meant. Um, and oftentimes what I found in the narratives of those very technical solutions that were being espoused was that the problem was one of integration, right? It was often issues related to access to information such that you could integrate into society, access to jobs, access to identification, access to a spare bedroom, um, frankly, anything under the sun that you can think of um, that would constitute one's socioeconomic life fell under the purview of some app solution, even though these problems appear to me to be questions around political will and complex problems around to what extent do we consider someone worthy of being a benefactor or beneficent, uh, beneficiary of um, of our welfare state or, you know, whatever it might be in the particular scenario. And so what was really interesting was that all of these apps were emerging purporting to give people access to, um, to solutions that met, met their needs. And yet what I found out very quickly during my research was that the needs, quote unquote, of refugees were scarcely consulted. 
Um, oftentimes in the, you know, in the early days of initiatives like TechFugees and other um, organizations, they were sort of structured around hackathons. The idea that you could just put a bunch of tech people into a room and have them hash out, you know, a solution to a problem that's been very understudied. Um, and so you come up with these Airbnb and Uber adjacent apps that were specifically geared towards refugees. And I think the most useless of those were probably the ones that were named with some pun or punny spin on the refugee subject, right? Um, and, and so it's very, very easy to identify the kind of products of the hackathon style um, uh, sort of solution. And that moment was just super interesting to me. It was sort of a neoliberalization of refugee integration in the context of Europe. And then in the context of America, what you were seeing was sort of slightly the opposite, but still a tech reinforcement of the immigration um, enforcement landscape. So smart cities were suddenly being weaponized, even through like things like Wi-Fi connectivity and digital ID systems and, you know, facial recognition, whatever else that you might think of, um, by law enforcement, by, sorry, immigration enforcement agencies, such as um, the US Immigration Customs Enforcement for tracking down, detaining, deporting, separating undocumented immigrants. So you had a situation in which a country that was fundamentally rooted in sort of state minimalism and non-intervention suddenly having the state very much reinforced and the relation between the state of the market changed uh, by the introduction of a, of a very aggressive um, tech sector. Yeah, I mean, I was, I really, really liked your framing and in your research about how you really centered um, like your research in places and, and in urban spaces. So you, you specifically looked at, you know, New York City and Berlin. Um, and I thought it was especially like striking because I think we often think of like border studies that happening at like physical territorial borders. Like mm -hmm. we think of the like US Mexico immigration as being something that happens in these borderlands. But you really pointed out like, and, and I think demonstrated really well how like the border exists in everyday life and that these digital technologies contribute to creating spaces or uh, like places of connection between like what is effectively a border if like connecting with it means that you are at risk of being deported. So maybe you could talk, like maybe pick like one example, how these new, one of these technologies were deployed and how it sort of like expanded the spaces in which like an individual could encounter a border. Absolutely. I will say that, I mean, there's certainly nascent studies and, and burgeoning, you know, research and sociological research, certainly from the critical race and digital border studies, a strand of literature and also from critical migration studies that is that is looking at, you know, the border beyond the border. But I think the reason to why we haven't necessarily done that in tech terms either is because, as you say, you you, you think about the border as something that's very fixed and that you know, delineating the Westphalian, you know, nation state from, from the other, but it's also because it, it thinks of tech fundamentally as um, from the epistemological standpoint of the creator and of those that would fund that particular creation and the way that the design specifications of the particular product are being communicated. Whereas what I tried to do with this work was to center, quote unquote, the truth of tech in the epistemological viewpoint of those who were subject to the tech. And so it was quite important for me to take this critical interpretivist or critical anthropological almost um, uh, point of departure 
in making sure that what I understood as the definition of the tech was how it's being experienced, not how it's how it was being communicated to me necessarily by the maker, although that of course is interesting too. Mm -hmm. um, and so what you discover very quickly when you start talking to um, communities, certainly um, communities who have slightly more precarious immigration status, such as asylees and undocumented immigrants, recent refugees, SIVs, so people with uh, special immigration visas, um, who have been given these after cooperating with, say, um, U.S. forces in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria, um, they will often find themselves, or, or as I discovered, certainly after the ramping up of ICE deportation rates in New York City, which is where I did my work, sort of evading any node that could potentially pick up data from them. Whether it did or not did not matter. And it wasn't so interesting to me. It was just interesting for me to see how the node that was that was being avoided was also a node that was an in, it was a representation of the institution that was supposed to service them itself. So in the context of Link NYC, which are these Wi-Fi kiosks that sort of have these digital ad boards on them, they have a tablet on the side where you can charge your phone. And it was really introduced to sort of these community boards that were replacing the phone boxes. Um, I think there, there, there was at the time of my research roughly 2,800 of them, but the plan was to roll out seven to 8,000 of them across all of New York City. And on these boxes, you can access immigration services. You can action translation services like 311. You can get in touch with and, 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 and do sort of, you know, the, have the sort of engagement that you would have with the mayor's office of immigrant affairs right there on the Lake NYC. And this is obviously not sort of a side product or a symptom. Like there was a deal that was made between um, Link NYC, which is a public-private partnership between Intersection, which is an alphabet daughter company, um, and between the mayor's office of immigrant affairs to be able to provide those immigration services directly through these Link NYC kiosks. But when I spoke to, um, to communities, uh, particularly for my position of being, you know, a sort of an in-house researcher and, and part-time caseworker within an immigrant resettlement organization, people were actively avoiding these. They had an experience that was rooted in like even sort of a scheduled court um, uh, appointment might land them in sort of a red, red zone or sort of as a red flag on ISIS radar. They were concerned that even using the subway system sometimes might put them at risk. And sort of urban concealment was very much a part of the reality and has been a part of the lived reality of immigrants and certainly undocumented immigrants in the United States for a very long time. But the space within which people could move void of the Link NYC kiosks was, was now suddenly far more constrained because not only did people have to deal with the spots that they might know um, uh, for, for being prone to ICE immigration raids, but they now also had to avoid the spots that had Lincoln NYC kiosks, you know, lest they end up connecting to their, to their phone and picking up data or picking up browsing behavior that could establish the provenance or language of their phone, which could give some indication to ICE about, you know, who these people were and who these communities were and, and, and end up targeting them. So that, that was kind of the experience that, that I was being communicated, that it was one of institutional, evasion. And so this is also why I talk about 
New York City, not just as a sanctuary city, which is how it situates itself. It situates itself as a city that doesn't share, it doesn't share data on your immigration status with the federal government. But of course, the same can't necessarily be set for the contractors that works to create the smart city of New York. And so I refer to New York as this digital anti-sanctuary because of how a lot of the digital urban infrastructures communicate the precarious immigration nature of a lot of its residents potentially um, to, to immigration customs enforcement. And so, I mean, you said when you started that sometimes that these communities will avoid nodes that don't necessarily or claim not to share information with like ICE, for example, were they right? Like, could that information ever be shared with ICE? So we know that data protection by intersection who owns um, the Lincoln West kiosks is notoriously poor. And I think it was first, um, it was first exposed by an undergrad student who had found the GitHub repository of the, um, of the particular operating system um, that was being deployed and the kind of data that it was able to pick up from you connecting to the Wi-Fi kiosk um, via Wi-Fi or even by just having your Bluetooth on and sort of passively picking up information from your phone um, or even through the cameras that are hidden behind the black panel, which uh, were not initially designed um, when Lincoln YC uh, consulted communities about these community boards. They weren't, they weren't, none of the community members came up and said, we need these things to have cameras. And yet they were installed into them. And so, you know, when I spoke with Intersection, there was this clear idea from them and what they were doing is that they were making services more accessible and that by merely providing connectivity, certainly to underprivileged communities, they were doing something good and they were moving towards progress. And when I questioned the idea around skepticism of these communities of Lincoln YC kiosks, what I was met with was that that skepticism was simply, you know, couldn't, couldn't possibly be true. Um, and they said that, that you know, um, they only pick up a couple of different personally identifiable um, sort of uh, items and that that included like uh, device language, uh, potentially device provenance, MAC address, a hash key, so that you don't have to re-log in for when you've when you've passed the splash page that you're introduced to after you connect to the Wi-Fi, so we can automatically connect you. And and frankly, mentioned all like a list of different um, data points that it was picking up, all of which were data points that would have been worrying to the communities that I was talking to, particularly the hash key that was being picked up in order to be able to um, continually reconnect to your phone. Um, one of the grievances that I kept hearing from some of my informants was that, why does this thing automatically connect me? I don't want it to automatically connect me. I want to be in charge of when I'm connected. What I'm, what I'm left with on the one hand is sort of this, well, what it really was, was sort of this tap dancing around the subject, right? It was like, very clear to me that the data that they're able to provide can be used to suss out demographics that they are in fact out of their own volition at times sharing video recording with the NYPD that even though they released a transparency report that shows the amount of requests that they've been receiving from the NYPD they don't in fact mention the amount of times they've just voluntarily handed over data to the NYPD it also doesn't mention anything about demographic data. And it also doesn't mention or clarify to what extent Lincoln YC plugs into the domain awareness system, which is a massive surveillance system that was designed with Microsoft uh, in New York City. Um, 
So there are a lot of open questions. I can't unequivocally tell you that ICE is using LinkNYC, but I can tell you that there are terabytes and terabytes of user data um, you know, extracted from millions and millions of users uh, that are location specific. It's like, imagine being able to have a Facebook transplant that's not just trying to guess your whereabouts, but that knows your whereabouts because it's literally right across the street from you. So I'm not saying that there's causation here, but I'm saying that if you map uh, you know, the Lincoln YC kiosk, the immigration rates against communities in New York City, it becomes very clear that at the very least there could be a correlation that's interesting and worrying um, and causing what I was referring to in the, in the thesis as sort of information panics. It's interesting because there's this tension between these private corporations in that on the one hand, they claim to be quote unquote safer, right? In, in terms of, from a perspective of, of someone like a refugee or an individual, a citizen, because they're private, because they're like, okay, we're private corporations, we're not the government. Therefore, like, don't worry about sharing your data with us in the same way that you would um, the government. And yet at the same time, both like a, there's like a market logic, which is that they wanna extract data because that's the way to be profitable. Um, and if they didn't, they're just kind of giving away free technology for no purpose. And I think I think you kind of you brought that up in some of your um, work with like good call in which these low tech solutions that don't extract data aren't profitable. So no one funds them. And yet at the same time, like I was thinking about, um, you know, Vice just did that report about um, the U.S. military buying location information from like Muslim prayer app. So then it's it's also interesting because it seems like the state is also driving this and that they're becoming consumers of of like citizen data um, rather than active <laughs> surveillers. So there's a lot of forces at play here, right? There's like the capitalism market forces. There's sort of the like surveillance state, like political state forces. Um, there's the business model force of just like how these companies monetize by extracting data and they could choose a different um, monetization strategy. Um, so do, do you think, you know, that the problem is like one of these forces in general? Do you think it's like really the state pushing it? Do you think it's the market? Do you think it's the model or is it or is them is it all of them kind of together? And is there and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, for instance, like if if the state just banned collecting data, for instance, like if tomorrow there's a bl blanket ban on collecting data, like, do you think these, these problems and logics and incentives would still kind of exist in Silicon Valley? I think this is a, a super incisive and important question. Um, and I think it gets to the core of the distinction between what Zuboff refers to as surveillance capitalism, as sort of a perversion of capitalism, and what a lot of slightly more critically inclined scholars not to say her work is not important in, 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 in certain respects, but like what some of, some of certainly the critical race and digital studies scholar would refer to as simply racial capitalism and, and an endemic force and mode of subjugation of racial capitalism. But I'll get back to this in a moment. Um, to get back to your question around like the sort of entanglements that enable the operation of the state and the operation of technology corporations, I think we have to take a step back and look through history um, at what Keller Easterling in her book, Extra Statecraft, explored as sort of these nested sovereignties 
um, when she was analyzing special economic zones, when she was analyzing the city and the port as sort of a space in which a cocktail of enticements were given to corporate entities um, in order to lure them uh, to the city. Uh, these could be tax credits. These could be, you know, you, you can think of in any number of ways in which a corporation might be incentivized to come to the city. And then in return, um, this, the, the corporations would, would, would build the city or would provide some form of good um, to the, the local authority. But what was very clear is that through this, through this relationship, the infrastructure power, which was formerly hate by, uh, held by the state, became co-owned um, by corporations. And of course, before, um, when these kind of movements were happening in the built environment, it was quite visible, right? Because again, it was in the built environment, you could see it, you could see if a particular neighborhood was becoming gentrified or a particular construction firm was moving in or some store was popping up. It was, it was quite clear. Um, however, in the digital age, it becomes very difficult to trace infrastructure power in the built environment. Of course, Lincoln YC isn't the exception, is the exception to that. But because it becomes so difficult to, to trace infrastructure power and who's involved, you have these nested sovereignties. You have the state, as you rightly pointed out, you have the tech corporations, you've got the advertising agencies who fuel into that, you've got immigration enforcement, you've got local law enforcement, and you know, layers upon layers of contracts and products and data streams that are really, really difficult to pin down and trace. And together they form this symbiotic relationship that's necessary in order for all of these actors to exist. In fact, these actors are mutually constitutive, right? Um, when we think about it, and I describe this within my framework of the digital periphery, Tech companies are in need of a form of a crisis or some form of justification in order to deploy a very sort of rapid testing approach or aggressive uh, technology iteration approach uh, to their product. Um, and at the same time, the state is often dependent on tech companies in order to provide data about its residents or about its particular demographic that it's interested in. And when I say the state here, I'm using it loosely because I'm of course referring to both local authorities and I'm referring to the federal government and I'm referring to also to some extent an arm of the state that is law enforcement and immigration enforcement. And so the fact that they are symbiotically reliant on, on each other kind of justifies this constant reiteration and reinforcement of exactly the kinds of smart cities that we've seen today and the kinds of product deployment, the kinds of technology experimentation on usually marginalized populations. Um, and in my, in my work, I refer to this as the creation of the digital periphery because, and, and so this works in, in three major ways, right? First of all, I say that like tech companies rely on modernization logics, the idea that some people are more backwards than other and therefore need some form of technical intervention in order to leapfrog into the current era, right? So a very neocolonial, largely dismissed theory within critical development studies, certainly, that still occupies the socio-technical imaginary of, of tech actors. And, and also, uh, to, to a great extent, uh, state institutions who truly believe that the tech sector is going to solve their problems, as I was witnessing in Berlin, for example. 
And, um, and then secondly, they rely on, not just on these modernization logics, which I refer to as techno development, they, they, ref, they, they also rely on techno space or they create techno space, which is these sort of iterative test beds in which they can uh, operationalize, weaponize the environment to test a particular product. So in New York City, it's the whole city and Wi-Fi infrastructure is deployed there. And, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's tested to see what, how, how, how much can, can they get away with extracting? How much can they get away with weaponizing these particular environments? Or in New York, sorry, in Berlin, it was sort of like, how much of refugee life can they get away with trying to commodify, right? Through these, through the apps that they were developing there. And so technospace is another thing that's sort of another space in which you see colonial geographies that are sort of being remapped in ways that are slightly more ubiquitous and that don't neatly follow the global north and global south divide, but that sort of still tries and insists on the existence of subaltern subjects in, in frankly everywhere, right? So it's slightly more ubiquitous. And then thirdly, techno-government, which is a symbiotic relationship between the state and tech actors um, that uses techno space and modernization logics in order to justify its existence and justify its, its profit-making motive. So two questions, um, like kind of drawing off of what you've, you've just said. There seems to be kind of like two kind of key problems in terms of thinking about how to then respond to this. So the first is, like you said, it's just less visible, right? And I think about this a lot in terms of like policing. I used to study policing in Northern Ireland and it's very obvious when there is a police officer in your community, it's not as obvious if the police ask Amazon to give the recordings of your Amazon Alexa. And so it's just more, it's just more difficult and it, then it's more difficult to mobilize. It's, it's more difficult to even know what's happening. And then the second issue is that there's just so many different actors, it becomes kind of unclear where do you jump in and who do you lobby and and at, at what point like are we mad at palantir are we mad at google like should we lobby them should we lobby our state congressmen or our you know our like state representatives um to change things um should should we mobilize on our own is that even possible so i guess like in these two things like where where do you see like the potential for jumping in and change this is a this is an important question, and I think we've landed ourselves in a bit of a catch twenty two. I am typically oriented towards the school of thought that identifies the place in which changes that reel in or sort of limit uh, corporate power is in fact in the state, and that we need effective regulation um, to stop or partially dismantle the tech industry. I'll get back to why I think that's important. But we're also in a moment in which there is a profound distrust, understandably, of the state. Um, as, a, as an activist scholar, I, I don't necessarily consider myself as someone who can trust, say, the U.S. government with knowing what's in the best in, uh, interest of Muslim communities, Black communities, uh, BIPOC communities at large, and certainly undocumented uh, migrant communities. Um, so... You know, these are these are really hard questions. And, and it's almost like in, in this day and age, what we need is an approach that encompasses both or all of the actors who are involved in reproducing the digital periphery. So it's both the state um, who needs to be addressed and lobbied to have effective regulation. And it's also the tech industry whose tech workers need to understand that 
their role in the production of the particular products that they are that they are designing is wound up with the production of borders that are not often seen or visible to them depending on the socioeconomic um, or racial uh, hierarchy place in the hierarchy that they or that they that they occupy um, or the kind of privileges that they have um, but the sooner that there is a realization that in fact they're engaged in the production of these borders that have fundamental consequences for life and death, as we've seen in, in worker workers' unions before and in workers' organizing before, the more pressure they can apply internally to um, the business uh, to change or to be forced to change. And I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very ardent skeptic of sort of digital ethics and the deployment of sort of ethical principles within the context of of corporations and certainly tech corporations, it sort of becomes this, yeah, there's a lot of ethics washing. It becomes this space in which you can communicate once again, generosity and, and tolerance and, and understanding, even, even if it's slightly, slightly more aggressive, like a moratoria on the development of, of a particular tech, even that is like only virtual signaling, right? Because you can lift the moratorium anytime you want. And so what I want to see is, is far more worker or workers organizing and some of the great work that's already been done with gig workers rising and the tech workers alliances uh, that have been emerging uh, tech worker uh, coalitions, excuse me, uh, paired together with the kinds of pressures that we've seen from, from close the camps and no tech for ice and no tech for tyrants as well in the governments. Um, and, and that's, that's, those are equally important, but at the end of the day, I hesitate answering this question in sort of practical terms also, because we really need to have, a strong epistemological turn also in how we think about this. This isn't just about state and corporation. This is fundamentally rooted in border abolition, right? The, if, if, we don't, if we don't think about these technologies as constitutive borders, then we can't fully understand to what extent they actually affect the lives of people. And what we've, what we've witnessed through the posturing of these technologies as fundamentally good and fundamentally serving of marginalized communities, the way that they signal themselves, is sort of, is sort of this idea of tolerance for refuge, but not fugitivity, right? So, so this is what I talk about in my work as well. I, I, I talk about how we're in a moment of refuge without fugitivity. And I think that's fundamentally problematic because what they were permit is for you to occupy a particular position, a particular immigration status, what they want permit is your evasion of their particularly invasive surveillance system that makes you subject to detention, uh, deportation, family separation, or even just having to live with a constant precarity of knowing that tomorrow might be your last day in the home that you've been building for the last 10 years. Yeah, and I think that was one of the things that was so striking about your work. And I just think like another reason why it's so important to center communities in in research like this is that when you think about like the tech posturing like you know such and such technology company being like oh we're gonna like try our best to do good and then it turns out it's not doing good and they're sort of like oh shoot so sorry you know that ignores this reality that I think that you're and it was just so much more um I don't want to say damning but like became so much more clear when you talk to refugee communities who say like, I'm a member of the queer community and if I get deported, like that is a death sentence. And then cutting to whatever tech worker 
saying, oh, I swear, you know, this technology is like collecting some information, but like what's probably not being shared is just so much more, you know, you see the real ramification of it beyond just the tech posturing. One of the things I noticed um, too is, is that specifically use the term racial capitalism, and that's very different than the term that's often brought up in discussions around technology and capitalism and these market forces, which is Shoshana Zuboff's um, surveillance capitalism. Um, and we actually had a, a podcast earlier um, with uh, Stephanie Felsberger in which we were critiquing a lot of the um, components of Zuboff's argument, especially in regards to her treatment or appropriation of colonialization. Um, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about like why you chose to situate like your research in um, racial rather than surveillance capitalism and like specifically how that um, uh, has framed or contextualizes your work and, and this creation of the, the, the digital periphery. Sure. So I think the first grievance that I had with Shazam Zuboff is when in her article on surveillance capitalism, um, she talks about this idea that in fact we're in a moment in which there's a there's been a perversion or a mutation of capitalism towards a commodification and um this sort of investment and concern of like human futures and it's and it's and it's really striking to me because it fundamentally ignores the history of capitalism and i don't know if that's just a particular perspective that comes out of being at a business school, or if if I'm being like too harsh here, um, I think what was really striking to me is that if Zuboff had picked up some of the Black radical literature, um, the Black radical tradition, in particular, folks like Cedric Robinson and Robin D. G. Kelly, it would be quite apparent, I think, as as Mirzoef also in his recent article uh, discussed, that surveillance and you know, similar forms of surveillance of what we're seeing now, although not like to that level of granularity in terms of data, is something that has been a feature of capitalism and, and not just capitalism, but because uh, I reject that term, but racial capitalism um, since its formation. So for starters, Cedric Robinson, who is a, the Black radical um, sort of father of, of racial capitalism in many ways, um, is sort of the person that I draw on the most when I talk about this particular moment and the establishment of the digital periphery. And, and the reason why I do that is, is because he, he roots this fundamentally, um, it, it's sort of a, a critical race analysis of the formation of, of capitalism in which he says that despite the sort of Marxist argument that what you would have seen um, at the, at the formation of capitalism was a negation of all former uh, modes of subjugation uh, that would then see sort of the bourgeoisie come to, come to power um, and, and grab the means of, of production. And that therefore this process, this dialectical process would see itself repeated throughout history and that eventually teleologically, we will end up in a moment in which the contradictions of capitalism will be too clear and there are, you know, modes of subjugation that then need to be contradicted and, and negated, and therefore we will end up in sort of this socialist moment. And in fact, Cedric Robinson says that is not the case because racialism as a mode of subjugation continued both uh, to play a central role in organizing labor and production in Europe, not just from Europe's own internal barbarians, but also of course then later on with the transatlantic slave trade, but then also how that force of racialism 
from feudalism continues into capitalism and, 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 and in fact is simply innovated. So what we, what we don't see is a negation of racialism, but what we do see is an innovation of alterity and the ways in which myths around particular racialized people, imagery about particularly uh, racialized people, um, numbers, uh, what Apadurai refers to as sort of the colonial imaginary um, about subaltern people come to form this idea that certain populations should, should occupy a particular position in the hierarchy of production um, with a particular reference point in Europe, right? And, and the way that that happens in my reading of Cedric Robinson and, and, and Keanu and some of the other, other critical race and, and black radical thinkers around this is through two modes of subjugation that have continued to be as true during feudalism as they have been throughout racial capitalism um, and its containment and its categorization. First, categorization is the mode through which a certain population is marked as being racial, whether it's through folklore or whether it's through these numbers that, you know, uh, speak about the particular efficiencies of the people of the Indian subcontinent during British imperial rule. Um, or, or whatever, whatever it might be, or today even, right? Like, um, I guess computational perversions or apps that speak about what refugee needs, right? That that's a form of categorization that's racial. And then it's through containment, which is through creating sort of a space in which you can contain these categorized individuals to work on value extraction um, from their bodies, from the labors of their bodies, or even from the mere existence of their subjectivity in a particular space. So I guess in the in the early formation of racial capitalism, it was be through the literal containment of people. Um, it was through people working plantations. You know, as we move on, it becomes through precarity. You know, the poor laws in particular uh, led to people taking up more flexibilized work. That's a form of containment and a form of bordering off social mobility. Uh, as we move into the, the 21st century in particular, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, through precarity, but it but it is. It's through gig workers. Uh, it's through uh, remote workers. But it's also through the mere existence again, the mere insistence of the existence of the image of the other that justifies a particular intervention or production of a product. So in in Berlin, for example, these apps that were not being used by refugees or if used, causing harm, but mostly not even being used we're still receiving copious amounts of funding from both large tech companies, as well as the Ministry of Migration and Refugees uh, and from other philanthropic organizations under the guise of doing something for refugee communities. Yet all they were doing was extrapolating and abstracting this notion of refugee-ness, right? Whatever that is, um, where the refugee has no voice to speak for themselves, where they're idealized and flattened into just a justification for their intervention at whatever cost. And so categorization and containment, again, whether it's done through app production, whether it's done through actual um, containment, whether it's done through surveillance, continues to play a role between the early formation of racial capitalism and into the digital age. And so for me, it seems absurd to say that there was a perversion because all I'm seeing is sort of quote unquote, innovation, right? Like ways of like innovating um, both alterity and the ways in which we benefit off of or 
violate or experiment with or extract from uh, subaltern bodies. In the racial surveillance framing, then Apple and Google and Amazon and Facebook are just natural continuations of what has historically been happening. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and, and I would even postulate and say, I would even contend that, that it's not so much human futures either that these companies are necessarily interested in. I think they're far more interested in what I refer to in my work as well as surrogate data, which is again, the, the idea of the voiceless individual or community who doesn't even get to like through their behavior and necessarily signal to you how they're going to work, but who you can just decide how they work in an abstract sense. Whether they do or not does not matter as long as you can have racial capital move around. And I call it racial capital, again, because it depends on this particular form of categorization of individuals. So I, yeah, I think, I think surrogate data will be a far more interesting um, frontier for the extraction of racial capital than even human futures. But I suppose that remains to be seen. And I am but a mere mortal recent, uh, <laughs> recent PhD, so. No, so, so then that's is interesting, right? Because Zuboff's argument basically says then like, okay, this is a perversion of capitalism. Therefore, if you just ban these like data extraction practices, we'll be fine. We can go back to quote unquote normal and things will be good. Then the two questions kind of come out of that. One, do you think then we should ban data extraction processes or is that even possible given like in, in the racial capitalism framing, you can't ban extraction because the whole point of it is extraction. Um, and then two, then then if, if banning data collection practices or, or the like quote unquote, like, um, like the, the, the monetization of these tech companies through like their extraction of data and then selling that to advertisers, then like, what is the solution? Solution is again, a technical term. Like then what's the, the framework? What's the entry point into like how we should think about this? Is it just taking on capitalism as a whole? Even if you were to ban extraction of massive amounts of data, again, I don't think that necessarily changes the ability of these companies to benefit off of racialized bodies. And I think, you know, the example, the reason to why I bring in surrogate data as a terminology within my work is to hone in on the idea that in fact, I just observed a dozen, if not more app initiatives in Berlin that didn't at all depend necessarily on extracting, you know, granular levels of information uh, from the communities that they were serving. Uh, although, you know, the ultimate consequence of the usage of the apps might have been that the only thing that they needed to justify their intervention and to keep going was just the idea that refugees might be using them. Um, and the way that they justify that is to, to work on numbers that they can sort of wrangle into appearing as, you know, um, data about refugees, as surrogate data. And I say surrogate data because it doesn't hold any truth. One example of this is a particular initiative that I spoke to, an informant from this initiative told me that they had 22,000 um, refugees that were using their particular service, uh, which was an app uh, and it was sort of a job matching app. And when I inquired further about where that number came from, I realized that that number came from the amount of Facebook likes that their page had. 
And this wasn't the first time that I had heard this particular approach to monitoring and evaluation being used. In fact, it was very reminiscent of the ways in which technology interventions are deployed in humanitarian contexts, and in particular in refugee camps, where you constantly have to sort of wrangle up numbers to justify that the particular intervention was useful so that you can continue receiving funding uh, for the funder for the operationalization of your program. So again, surrogate data in this case is far more important, or at least is equally important to the granular data extraction that is happening under Zuboff's conception of, of surveillance capitalism. So even if you were to stop that and ban these companies from tracking and from gathering these, these amounts of data, I still think we would have a problem because this is the model under which racial capitalism operates is through categorization and containment. It really reminds me. So this new book by Tim Huang came out called The Subprime Attention Crisis, where he basically argues sort of a similar thing to what you're saying, which is that Facebook and Google and whatever claim that all of this like data that they're extracting about us makes their digital ads really, really good. And, and Zuboff kind of accepts their argument with her right to a future tense that the problem is that they have so much data about this that they're actually eroding free will by their ability to engineer us. Whereas Huang says this is complete crap. Um, they, it's, it's totally overblown. Um, so it's really, I just wanted to like tie that in. Like it's, it, it really just seems like everything that these, these companies are based on is just smoke and mirrors essentially. And that, that, the, that's not their value or what they see. So the surrogate data, I think is such an interesting, like, um, like helpful framing. Right. Cause it's all about conjecture. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, I, I love, I love that that phrase that you used about like, we need a wider political imagination because I think actually it was Jeff Bezos who said this, that was like, we create these new technologies and then they get adopted so quickly that they become ordinary and people yawn. Um, And that really strikes me about a lot of not just technologies, but political things. So like in recent years, calls to abolish ICE completely have been called just like radical and like unthinkable. Like how could we live without ICE? And yet ICE was created in like 2001. Um, Same things with so many other institutions. So like I studied, uh, like, as I said, policing. The police are like a very, like pretty recent creation. So all of this talk about like abolish the police, I think, and and many, this is considered such a radical proposition, but actually the police are pretty new um, as an institution. and same with, um, so I just finished uh, Torpy's book on the invention of the passport. Passports and borders, new things. Um, and, and so uh, these, yeah, this, this idea, this, this call for like a wider political um, imagination like really resonates with me about, and that even the things that we think of as radical or think of as being really imaginative are actually in some ways like not as entrenched as we think. Um, so I guess you, you've kind of you've kind of touched on this, but um, you know be, because you're studying migration, what does the abolition of borders like look like to you? How do you imagine then the the state fits in with that? I think there are there are far better internationalist conceptions, Marxist internationalist conceptions of what the world could look like uh, that are not rooted in the Westphalian conception of the of the Western. Uh, state uh, of the Western nation state that I think ought to be explored. 
uh, in the same way that we so easily gave up sovereignty to tech actors. And I hesitate to use this term because by espousing the narrative that they do have sovereignty, we give them sovereignty. But of course, that is very much the reality is that if we can so easily imagine a future in which we give up sovereignty or, or at least governing power to tech companies, then why can't we imagine giving up some sovereign power to another entity that isn't concerned with a profit-making motive, but that's far more concerned with centrally organizing to meet the needs of all communities everywhere, right? To meet the needs for giving, getting away from a punitive system that maximizes the profits of private prisons, of the occupation of Palestine, uh, of and through uh, various other security uh, uh, technologies and sophisticated surveillance technologies. Like why can't we imagine a situation in which the, the money that, that governments are already spending on all of these endeavors that are fundamentally rooted in the oppression of marginalized communities could be redistributed and used for the gains of marginalized communities. There is this dearth in, in the general public's understanding, certainly those who take issue with affirmative action, I think, that, that doesn't necessarily appreciate that by meeting the needs of the most marginalized, we're meeting the needs of everybody, right? And it's, and it's not this zero-sum game where, you know, you're all going to lose or like white folks are going to end up in like a, a weird situation in which they're now the underclass just because black populations or Palestinians or undocumented communities are now tended to. That's not the end goal here. The end goal here is to make sure that everybody's needs are met. And so when I talk about border abolition, I talk about the abolition of borders that keep capital in certain places and labor in other places to ensure that those two never meet right? Or that those two can never renegotiate their relationship between one another. This pandemic moment is a particularly uh, clarifying moment insofar as labor is very much stuck in its place. When it's not, it's very precarious. But even, you know, for the most part, it's very much stuck in its place. But racial capital is flowing very freely. We're working potentially more hours from behind our screens, even for those who are doing gig economy jobs or content moderation jobs or training algorithm from algorithms from Bangladesh, racial capitalism is moving very freely, yet we are very, very much stuck in place. This is, this is a border issue, right? And so that's kind of what I think of. And so, you know, defunding the police like doesn't quite go you know, far enough for me. Defunding ICE doesn't go far enough for me. It's, it's about completely abolishing them because they are agents and they've been deputized by racial capitalism. What we need, and this will come from, you know, advocates of police is like, they will say, well, what about safety? And I'm like, well, there are issues that are endemic and caused by racial capitalism that lead to the kinds of, of, of crime that you might perceive as needing or justifying the existence of the police. And those can be met through redistribution. Those can be met through access to education. And yes, some degree of safety may be needed. And so we can think about community, um, community-led forms of safety, you know, uh, such as those that conversation in, in, in Minneapolis have been surrounding, um, that can still meet the needs uh, of, of communities following, you know, this, this change or this abolition. So it's a very comprehensive rhizomatic thought experiment. But I think if the entirety of 
the, at least the sociological uh, academe uh, took this upon itself to like think about different ways in which abolition affect these different areas, uh, we could really come up with, with an agenda that could be quite interesting and productive in moving us towards abolition. These, these systems almost create the problems that they're purporting to solve. So like all of the research about like immigrants, refugees, if you let them work, they create economic value. But if you don't let them work, and either by like denying them visas that allow them to work or like keeping them in refugees camps, they do drain value. So you are creating the problem you are purporting to solve. Same with, I think, Rutger Brenman's book, Utopia for Realists, which I really love, said like, if we had open borders, two to three times wealthier through open borders. So actually these things that we're afraid of happening, were creating the problems rather than solving them. Um, so, so I agree for your call for academia to be more um, imaginative. The last thing to think about, I guess I really liked your inclusion of like, the strategic refusal of these communities to use this technology, what you call the decolonial neo-Luddite approach, um, which I love as, as, as a term. Um, and it, it reminded me a lot of like James Scott's writing about the way of like how people resist powers, even when like the political elite narrative is that they have complete control. And though that strikes me about like the, t the new technology discourse, although it might be true throughout history as well, is that the, the argument is that these technologies are so kind of invasive or, or, or pervasive that they're, it's sort of futile to resist especially with facial recognitions. We're going to get to like a Tom Cruise world. And actually, I think I was listening to um, the author of um, We Have Been Harmonized about the Chinese surveillance state, that there's he, there, there's no proof of whether it's true or not, but they say that the, the, the Chinese state claims that the AI, if, you, if it puts your face in their AI machine within a second of you stepping into um, a camera, they're able, they're alerted um, to where you are. So in that sense, so there's, there's kind of two arguments there. One is like a techno determinist argument. That's like, it's kind of futile to resist, you know, a, a different argument about like the ways, the ways in which we should think about like mobilizing, going through institutions like political institutions, like the state versus like collection, um, like collective mobilization. So like, for example, like, I think there's been, and I think you were involved with this in, in, in NY, um, New York City about like just banning facial recognition. Um, and that's people organizing around the state. Um, but there's also like political mobilization around like, let's mobilize around Amazon to not use facial recognition. So I just wondered if you could just like bring in this sort of like the resistance element. Do you think it's possible to, to resist tech in this kind of neo-Luddite kind of way? When I drew up the frame around the decolonial um, neo-Luddite approach, I was inspired by folks like uh, Said Mustafa Ali, who have already talked about fugitive decolonial Luddism. Uh, and I was in particular inspired by um, Chellis Glendening, who in the 90s wrote notes towards a neo-Luddite uh, neo manifesto, in which she sort of talks about three major points, right? Uh, the first is that that neo-Luddites aren't anti-technology, they're concerned with the ways in which the material configurations emerging out of these technologies or underpinning the technologies are unequal or oppressive towards certain populations. Uh, she talks about how uh, technologies are always uh, political, uh, that again, the, the structures that I mentioned before are replicated to the technology and so that these need to be addressed. And then thirdly, the sort of individualized, personable 
idea of technology is dangerous and stands in the way of having these conversations around material inequity. So the idea that your particular piece of tech is convenient and it doesn't compromise your privacy. So, you know, you know, why give it up? You know, what's the, what's the problem? And I think what this calls for is this, is this, is a uh, far more, uh, sort of community-based approach uh, to our thinking and our imagination of tech futures. Because as soon as it becomes individualistic, we fall trapped to the very form of ignorance, um, even if it's willful, uh, that, that sort of tech companies and the current structure depends on in order to continue surviving. Um, and I think to the, to the point of facial recognition, this has been a particular battlefield uh, over exactly this question over the last year, and it's flared up in the aftermath of the of the Capitol uh, attacks uh, in Washington, D.C., because, of course, we had a year of a sort of second movement of the Black Lives Matter um, uh, protests, which saw tech companies come out and call for or instate moratorium moratoria on their on themselves for the production of facial recognition after it was discovered by numerous studies that between 65 to 95% of facial recognition results were inaccurate and could therefore lead to false arrests, which there have also been incidents of ever since. And also the argument emerged, uh, which I think is a far more stronger argument against uh, facial recognition, that even when it's accurate, it's being deployed by police departments and law enforcement agencies that have no due process that don't understand human rights due diligence, that don't serve the interest of black and brown and minority and indigenous communities well. And so why would you want to give a technology of mass surveillance that doesn't require a warrant to use to police departments that are already entangled in these forms of discriminatory behavior? Um, and the kind of argument that has been espoused against those of us advocating for a ban on facial recognition has been that we're anti-technology, right? That, that we are standing in the way of process that, you know, the Amazon's new or, you know, forthcoming CEO uh, came out a couple of days ago and, and, or at least the video surfaced a couple of days ago around him talking about, you know, why would you stop police departments from having this very innovative technology, sophisticated technology when it was available uh, before any proof that it, that it had been uh, used uh, to, you know, uh, to falsely arrest anyone or before you, you could show that it had actually discriminated against community. And I'm just like, so you want the harm to happen before, you know, before you're banning this technology, when all of the research shows that this technology will be used, is currently used and is by default and by design, a technology of mass surveillance. And I'm going to stop myself here, but my day job is as the lead on banning facial recognition at Amnesty. So it's like, it's very much my wheelhouse. I mean, I think it's such a good point in that uh, what particularly, I think what I, I get questions about a lot, which is like, should I leave Facebook? And it's a similar sort of, I always say it's the same. It, it is exactly, it's a neoliberal approach and it's this individualism to uh, a false equivalent of an individualist problem to what is a community must be a community-based solution, which is that it does not matter if you leave Facebook. It does not matter in a sense if your phone scans your face, but it does matter collectively to everyone. Exactly. Um, so I think it's such an important point. Um, I think it's our final question to sort of wrap up. 
um, which is if you could give one policy recommendation to any entity, so that can be UNHCR, the U, the US, New York City's mayor's office, Palantir, um, what, what would you recommend? Introduce a right to refuse. And, and I think this is cross-cutting. I think there needs to be a right to refuse. Um, and what I mean by that is the right to refuse engaging with your, for example, socioeconomic or political rights through a particular technology that you believe is harming your community. That there should be alternative configurations to which you can access the rights without having to use the particular uh, technology um, that is being uh, situated for you. And I think by operationalizing, even as a thought experiment, the right to refuse, you very quickly start to see an image of what technologies would very quickly fall away or not be used or potentially be unprofitable because actually people weren't forced to use them and they would prefer to access their rights in other ways. I'm not saying that the digital doesn't have affordances and that the internet isn't bringing us closer to some um, some of our rights. But what I'm saying is that currently they're potentially modulating our access to them in ways that are unhelpful. And so the right to refuse, at least the opportunity to refuse, is something that I would introduce um, as my one policy point, if I only had one. Thank you so much again to Matt for coming on this episode of the Anti-Dystopians, and congratulations again on becoming Dr. Mahmoudi. All of the articles, books, or scholars that Matt and I mentioned in this podcast will be available in the show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. We'll also include further information on the campaign that Matt is involved with to ban the facial recognition scan in New York City. You can also sign up to get this information and notifications about the anti-dystopians as an email newsletter by following the links below. To prevent the world from descending into dystopia, be sure to subscribe to the anti-dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.